Africa rise and shine Africa zorka Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 6145 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onelen Zinzi, Tabiso Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Sudan Vice President says political will exists for lasting peace. At least eight people killed in Burundi's capital, Bujumbura, and Kenyan teachers call off their five-week strike. In economics, Zimbabwe's gold producers ask government to cut royalties. And in sports news, South Africa's Orlando Pirates make history. First up, the news with Onilin Sinti. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Lulu. Looking at your news update. Two suicide bombings have left five civilians and a policeman dead in Niger. A police officer says there were 10 deaths in total, including the policemen, five civilians and the four suicide bombers based in southeastern city of Defar, where the blast occurred on Sunday. There was no immediate claim for responsibility of the attack, but suspicions have fallen upon Boko Haram. Lesotho and South African businessman Jesse Ramakadane, who was fighting extradition from South Africa for allegedly plotting to kill Prime Minister Pakadita Mosesidi in 2009, has died. Ramakatane was fingered by convicted mercenaries as one man that recruited them prior to the 2009 siege of an army base and the state house. In his recent testimony to the SADC Commission, Deputy Prime Minister Motejoa Mitzing implied that Ramakatane may have been involved in another threat to kill him for refusing to vote for his amnesty in the post-2012 coalition government of Tom Tabane. Ramakatane's family says he has been ill for some time but is health deteriorated over the past couple of weeks and he succumbed last night. Meanwhile, a SADC defense and security organ meeting to discuss Lesotho will be held in Maputo, Mozambique on Tuesday. This after lawyers warned that proceedings of the SADC commission investigating the death of former Army Commander Mabranga Mahao in South Africa may be now in void. Exiled soldiers told the commission in Tabanchu in the Free State South Africa that Army Commander Tladika Modi wanted to rule the country and others said they were brutally tortured by, for the alleged mutiny. They include soldiers that were present when former Prime Minister Tom Tabane was evacuated on the morning of the alleged coup of 
August 30th. Ntakwane Ngatane has more. Lawyers representing the government have warned the commission that evidence heard outside Lesotho borders may be inadmissible because the commission is not extraterritorial. But Chair, Judge Mpapi Pumapi, said plans had already been made and he has proceeded. Tabani and other exiled opposition leaders have attended the proceedings, although they haven't testified. But this issue may be the main subject of the Sadak Troika meeting scheduled for Mozambique tomorrow. Burundi's Foreign Minister Alain Nyamitwe denies that the country's human rights record is deteriorating. This following an upsurge in unrest and civil unrest. Last week, the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights described that bodies were being found in the streets of the capital almost every day, some showing signs of torture. The country has been wrecked by unrest this year following a failed coup. Protests began when the president decided to seek a third term, when, which demonstrators said was an unconstitutional move. He subsequently went on to win re-elections. Yamito explains the government's recent actions. We believe that dialogue has to be carried on. We might not agree on the modalities that some partners or some people within the UN might you know, will be willing to uh, put in place to see that, uh, that happening, but we believe that uh, those elements are, are, are true. Vis-à-vis the Arusha Agreement, you recall that the Arusha Accord itself is now part and parcel of the Constitution. There's no standalone document called Arusha Agreement. Now, vis-à-vis the situation in the country, what we we want to make sure is that we have the Constitution implemented fully. That is, the Arusha Agreement implemented fully. And finally, South Africa has until Monday to explain to the International Criminal Court why it did not arrest Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir when he attended the African Union Summit in Senton in June. The country's capital, Pretoria, fell foul of its own court when, as a signatory to the Rome Statute, failed to carry out a warrant of arrest. Al-Bashir is wanted by the ICC on charges of crimes against humanity. On June 15, the North Harting High Court ruled that al-Bashir be arrested and handed over to the ICC. But by that time, al-Bashir had already left the country. Senior political journalist Amos Pacho has more. On May 28th, in a note to the South African Embassy, the court reminded Pretoria of its obligation to consult with it if it foresaw any difficulties in arresting al-Bashir. On June 15, the North Houghton High Court ruled that al-Bashir be arrested and handed over to the ICC. But by the time al-Bashir had already left Waterloo military base in what has been seen as an open defiance of the order, the ANC Youth League called for South Africa to relinquish its commitment to the Roman Statute. The ANC has also instructed the Department of International Relations to review South Africa's membership of the court. Speculation is rife that the Sudanese president may return to the country for the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation scheduled to take place in December. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelensinsi. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Onel. It's 807 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 6145 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa.
Gunshots and grenade explosions have rocked several areas in Burundi's capital, Bujumbura, killing at least eight people. Residents said the latest violence erupted on Saturday afternoon with the worst of it in the Sibitoke and Mutakura neighborhoods, a focus for protests against President Pierre Nkurunziza's administration. Channel Africa's Bernard Bankukira has more from Bujumbura. Residents of Mutakura and Tibitoki in the northern commune of Ntahangwa of the capital Bujumbura spent a horrific weekend. Heavy gunfire and grenade explosions rocked the area from around 11 to go until night. Panic and desolation could be read on the faces of those residents who came to witness themselves six dead bodies found at the same place in Chiptoke early on this Sunday morning. Everything started around 11 o'clock and went on until 17 hours. We heard a lot of grenade explosions and gunshots. No one could leave home or go anywhere. They even shot at people inside their homes. They continued until around 17, but we continued to hear grenade explosions and gunshots during night. Uh, the situation was uh, terrible. There are uh, many sounds from guns from different uh, kinds, and it was terrible just for civil for civil people. It was uh, really terrible. Uh, I cannot say I cannot see how I can uh, describe it. It was uh, really terrible. Yourself, you have seen that around this this area, so many people have been killed, and you find uh, dead people in uh, in the in the street. Among those people, I know two. There are, there are people that I know uh, around this area, and, uh, I, and I think that they are in, really innocent. The police spokesperson says security forces were attacked by armed criminals who shot and threw grenades at them as they were conducting their usual activities. He says investigations have already started to know how those people were killed. Apart from more than 20 grenades thrown to policemen during the day, the criminals continued to throw 15 grenades to police agents and injured four of them. What I would like to add is that early in the morning of this Sunday, they were called by residents informing them about discovered dead bodies. When they arrived, they found six people killed in Tibitoke. So the number of killed people during the day of Saturday and during the night of Sunday in Tibitoke reached eight. But the six bodies were found far from police and military posts. Residents informed the security forces that they heard gunshots around 3 a.m of Sunday investigations on those dead bodies have already begun. Edwin Kabura, one of the residents of Chibitoke, recognizes that some armed criminals might be hidden in the neighborhoods but asks policemen to utilize modern means to identify weapons in the wrong hands. Yeah, sometimes it happened and uh, it is better for policemen to find other, other techniques, other modern techniques to be able to identify uh, where the grenades are and the other guns, like uh, what you have seen uh, through the televisions when they use uh, police, I don't know if you can call them police dogs, to be able to identify really, really because even you see that even some policemen are, are killed and there's no other way. He also urges security forces to utilize non-violent means in their efforts to take out arms in the wrong hands so as not to victimize innocent people. 
for civil residents owning legal weapons. They should surrender them to security forces and allow them to carry out security as competent people. For security force, I can tell them that they have to identify really for criminals, but not uh, killing uh, just innocent people, uh, because if you are innocent, if you don't have a gun, uh, it is un- un- understandable to, to, to be killed. Because uh, around this place, I've seen policemen and the other civil servants, but if you are going home and uh, you are just killed, it is a really a crime for, for, for someone. For civilians, it is better to give those guns to the policemen and the security should be handed over by policemen who are competent in that domain. Bujumbura is still under the strains of continuous insecurity. Recently, the government announced a decree granting amnesty to owners of illegal arms willing to hand them back voluntarily, and this aiming at encouraging whoever wants to hand the weapon back to do it without fear of being pursued. Till now, no report of voluntary handover of weapons since the announcement of the decree. At the same time, Burundi President Pierre Nkurunziza has given a one-month deadline for owners of illegal arms to hand them over, threatening to use force if they fail to respond positively. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankukira reporting from Bujumbura. Burundi's Foreign Minister Alain Nyamitwe has denied that the country's human rights record is deteriorating following an upsurge in arrest and civil unrest. Last week, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees described that bodies were being found in the streets of the capital almost every day, some showing signs of torture. The country has been wrecked by unrest this year after a failed coup. Protests began when the president decided to seek a third term, which demonstrators said was an unconstitutional move. He subsequently went on to win re-election. Nyamitwe explains government's recent actions. If you remember the, His Excellency the President, while he was campaigning, he had promised the people that um, one of the, I mean, the first priority would be to restore peace and security in the country. And um, one of the ways of doing so is um, to enable the citizens of the country to sit down and um, look at those matters that are challenging them somehow. If you remember very well, even uh, the, the UN Secretary General has called and know the parties, as has put it, to refrain, number one, from violence, but also to engage in a serious dialogue. But we believe that uh, the dialogue should not become uh, an issue between a few individuals. It is uh, Dialogue is a permanent exercise that uh, involves the citizens of the country because issues of security, issues of economic development, issues of land management and all those need to be uh, tackled by the citizenry at large. So we believe, uh, we continue to believe, that the current setting up of a national commission in charge of the inter-Burundi dialogue is a giant step forward in resolving the problems that we're having in the country. At the same time, during his speech, the vice president spoke about the progress that has been made towards development since the end of the war in civil war in Burundi. This progress has been impressive in terms of education, in terms of gender balance. What are the challenges now that is facing Burundi in terms of development? What are the priorities that are set by the government? Well, uh, in terms of development, we have um, a framework that we're working through, which is the framework on the fight against poverty. And uh, we we look into job creation, we look into business development, um, that is um, trade. and uh, So we we believe that uh, we have a number of assets that we can work on to make sure that development becomes a reality in our country. 
There is another point I want to discuss. It's about the uh, Arusha peace agreement. The Secretary General Ban Ki-moon recently said that Burundi had made a great step towards the implementation of these agreements, but at the same time he said that the events that happened this year might be a step backward, that Burundi should be keen on fostering human rights, democracy, mm-hmm. inclusiveness. How do you make sure that these fundamental rights are, are guaranteed in Burundi? No, I have to say, first of all, that um, we pretty much say the same thing with the Secretary General. We believe that human rights are important. We believe that uh, the Arusha Agreement has to be implemented. We believe that dialogue has to be carried on. We might not agree on the modalities that some partners or some people within the UN might you know, will be willing to uh, put in place to see that, uh, that happening, but we believe that uh, those elements are, are true. Vis-à-vis the Arusha Agreement, you recall that the Arusha Accord itself is now part and parcel of the Constitution. There's no standalone document called Arusha Agreement. Now, vis-à-vis the situation in the country, what we we want to make sure is that we have the Constitution implemented fully. That is, the Arusha Agreement implemented fully. And one of the ways of doing so is let the people look at the Arusha Agreement, look at the Constitution, look at the situation on the ground, look at the institutions, and see whether the institutions that we have today reflect exactly what has been set in the Constitution or in the Arusha Agreement. That's number one. Vis-à-vis the human rights situation, I think uh, it is also clear that uh, we should not forget that the government of Burundi has set up a national commission in charge of human rights. That commission is one of the best commissions or best type of commissions you can have in the world. It's Type A commission, and it is doing a wonderful job. Moreover, the African Union has deployed a mission of uh, human rights observers who are on the ground and are working with the national authorities to assess the human rights situation on the ground. Now, vis-à-vis the security, again, it is a priority for the government and we continue to work with our partners in the region and beyond to make sure that uh, the situation vis-à-vis security is completely under control, which it is uh, as we speak. Because we, it, it will be an anomaly, it will be a contradiction that we as a country, we contribute to peace and security in the world and fail to do it in the country. That was Alain Nyamitwe, Burundi's foreign minister, speaking to UN Radio's Priscilla Lacom. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. I love It's 8.19 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 6145 kilohertz on the 
41-meter band to southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to far west Africa. The vice president of South Sudan says the political will exists to end months of violence in which thousands have died or been forced to flee their homes. James Wani Iga said this last week after he addressed the United Nations general debate and hailed the fragile peace agreement signed last month with the main opposition. The former Vice President Riek Machat took up arms against President Salva Kiir's forces leading to a war along ethnic lines that has been raging for almost two years. More than two million people have been displaced and tens of thousands killed. Iga elaborates. The most important uh, content of my message there was the fact that uh, our country has been uh, for 20 months almost uh, on a civil uh, strife. And uh, the UN plus IGAD, uh, AU and many other players actually prevailed on the situation. So on the 26th of August uh, this year, we've been able to sign a peace agreement. It is this peace agreement now that uh, we want to, to cement and to consolidate. And as a matter of fact, uh, we are requesting, uh, you know, the UN to also prevail on the armed uh, opposition uh, who have not yet signed a very important context of um, security arrangements which are leading to the uh, cementing also the ceasefire. So this is important for all the players beginning with the UN. And uh, after that, uh, we are expecting the deployment of the monitors and verifiers on the ground. Uh, by EGAT. This also needs to be speeded up really. Uh, I have appealed in that uh, message of mine to the uh, international community to help uh, financing the process of the implementation. Do you think, Your Excellence, there's a real political will to get rid of the violence? There is, I must uh, assure you, there is, yes. And how are we going to implement these SDGs in the middle of the violence? This is why we actually need on the ground these uh, ceasefire monitors and verifiers because if uh, you and me have a quarrel, we need somebody to come to the middle and say, no, 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 enough is enough. We need these people to be quickly deployed. Mm. Yeah, that will be a solution, I, I strongly believe so. That was James Wani Iga, South Sudan's Vice President, speaking to UN Radio's Joseph Sumsami. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. South Africa has until today to explain to the International Criminal Court why it did not arrest Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir when he attended the African Union Summit in Johannesburg in June. Pretoria fell foul of its own courts when, as a, a signatory to the Rome statue, statute, failed to carry out a warrant of arrest. Al-Bashir is wanted by the ICC on charges of crimes against humanity. On June the 15th, the North Gauteng High Court ruled that Al-Bashir be arrested and handed over to the ICC, but by that time, Al-Bashir had already left the country. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more on that story. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, revetua. Africa, Africa, Wema. Sun rising. Le soleil élevé. Weya Wema. What's in the happen, Africa? 
Africa, Dumelang Sanbonani. Africa, Mulishani, Pulibwanji. Africa, Enyomi, Kilonshele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. Within the happen Africa. It doesn't matter where you come from. Lesotho, Kenya, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Tanzania, Congo, Liberia, Togo, Ethiopia, DRC, South Africa, Swaziland, Morocco, Botswana, Gabon, Zimbabwe, Mauritania, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Liberia. It doesn't matter where you're from. We are one people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.24 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Preparations are underway in the Kenyan capital Nairobi in anticipation for Pope Francis' three-day visit to Kenya. Kenya will be the first touchdown for the Pope in his African tour before heading for Uganda and later the Central African Republic. And in keeping with the theme of tolerance and inclusivity, Pope Francis' itinerary will include interreligious meetings with Christians, Muslims, Hindus and traditional leaders. Mwaki Konyo reports from Nairobi. During his maiden visit to Kenya, Uganda and the Central African Republic later next month, the Holy Father will meet leaders from all the religious faiths as he seeks to advance his global bid of fostering religious tolerance across the globe. Kenya will be the first touchdown for the Pope in his maiden African tour before heading to Uganda and the Central African Republic. Hundreds of thousands of Catholics in East Africa are expecting to attend an open-air mass in Nairobi. The Pope, a passionate advocate for the environment, will also visit the headquarters of the United Nations Environment Program, UNEP, based in Nairobi, and hold talks on challenges and strategies to us in Vosa coexistence. And according to State House spokesman OSPSU, Kenya is deeply honored to be the country where His Holiness makes his first landing in the continent. He will be the second Pope to visit Kenya after John Paul II in 1995. Kenya is deeply honored to be the country where His Holiness makes his first landing on the continent. During his three-day visit, the Holy Father will hold bilateral discussions with His Excellency the President and his government before meeting senior officials at the United Nations Environment Program and addressing members of the diplomatic call. The Holy Father's itinerary will include an interreligious meeting with Christian, Muslim, Hindu and traditional leaders. Pope Francis will also give a general address to Kenyans, meet with a number of youth and celebrate Mass. And according to Cardinal John Jue of Nairobi, the Pope's visit to Kenya will be a joyous moment for over 14 million Catholics in Kenya. The confirmation by the Holy Father that he will make this historic visit indeed is a joyous moment for the over 14 million Catholics and indeed all the Kenyans. We appeal to you all to come out in large numbers to receive the Holy Father and listen to him. We will inform you, dear Christians, in due course on the fine details of the visit. The Pope visit to Kenya follows the high-profile visit by the U.S. President Barack Obama, who came to Kenya for the Global Entrepreneurship Summit, but used the occasion to address the nation in addition to holding bilateral discussions with his Kenyan counterpart. Currently, preparations are in top gear in anticipation for the three-day Pope's visit to Kenya. 
After the visit, Kenya will be hosting the World Trade Organization Conference and the first Tokyo International Conference on African Development. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. It's 8.27 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Learning resumes this morning in public schools in Kenya after five weeks of a nationwide strike. The Kenya National Union of Teachers announced the suspension of a strike and advised its members to resume teaching promptly, including supervision of national exams across the country. But union officials in Nairobi have warned government that the strike has only been suspended for 90 days to give room for further negotiation with the government on the implementation of the 50 to 60 percent salary increment. Mwagi Konyo reports from Nairobi. It has been a sigh of relief for students, their parents and government officials after officials of the teachers union announced the immediate suspension of the five-week-long teacher strike across the country. A sport check at public schools in Nairobi shows most of the striking teachers have reported on duty and have agreed to resume teaching and ensure national exams are run smoothly as planned before. The decision to resume duty was announced by the Secretary-General of the Kenya National Union of Teachers, Wilson Sosion, despite protests from a section of teachers who strongly accused the union officials for wasting time in the national strike. Now we are asking all our teachers, resume duties promptly on 8 o'clock and physically have been told because we love this country on Monday on Monday 8 o'clock and we are now announcing formally that third term commences on the 5th of October parents we are ready for you. You will meet us ready to receive your children in class and bring your children physically. Nonetheless, union officials have warned that the strike has only been suspended for 90 days to give room for further negotiations with the government and other stakeholders on the implementation of the 50 to 60 percent pay increment for the striking teachers. According to the Secretary General of the Teachers Union, Wilson Sosion, they were forced to suspend the strike following an earlier court order in the industrial court. Unlike the government, unlike the Teacher Service Commission, teachers of this country adhere to the rule of law. Teachers of this country respect the Constitution. And that court order be obeyed even when manifestly unfair and unjust to the teachers. For this reason, and this reason alone, all teachers who are members of Kenya National Union of Teachers will resume teaching on Monday, 5th October 2015, in accordance with and in obedience to the orders of the Honorable, which was issued yesterday, though we are obeying, are unjust, unfair to the teachers. Most students in public schools have now returned to their respective schools. I really appreciate this because while we were at home, we were really affected by the strike. But now, at least, we, we can revise in, in, in the classes with the teachers which are there. Education experts in Nairobi are optimistic of the new development, especially decision by the striking teachers to resume teaching in all public schools. They sympathize with at least one million candidates 
sitting for national exams this year. It's not going to be fair, especially when, he, when you're looking at it from the learner's perspective, just being able to subject someone to an exam and you've not taught them the content thoroughly, then that's going to be extremely unfair. But then on the other hand, we must guard against having the education sector held a transform by people, by cartels that want to decide when processes stop and when... And that report by Mwai Gikonyo. Our headlines up next with Onelin Zinzi. Two suicide bombings have left 10 people dead in Niger. A SADC defense and security organ meeting to discuss Lesotho to be held in Mabuto, Mozambique on Tuesday. And Burundi's foreign minister, Alain Nyamitwe, denies that the country's human rights record is deteriorating. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelin Sinsi. Thank you, Onele. Zimbabwe is facing acute power shortages with households going for close to 20 hours of total darkness. The blame, according to officials, is squarely on climate change that resulted in low rainfall last year and reduced water levels in the main power source, Lake Kariba. Upon his arrival from the United Nations summit recently, President Robert Mugabe admitted the country is in trouble but blamed it all on the West for the devastating climate change. Simon Chema reports from Harare. It never rains but pours for the southern African nation called Zimbabwe. On one hand, the economy is struggling with higher unemployment, food shortages and non-availability of essential drugs in hospitals. On the other hand, water shortages are to blame for power outage. Although the leadership is trying its best, the country is broke and has had to persuade international financial institutions such as International Monetary Fund, World Bank and the Paris Club for loans. However, all the institutions insist they are ready to give money to Zimbabwe, but arrears and outstanding debts for decades have to be cleared first. It would appear every sector of the economy in the country is facing its own fair share of challenges but the recent power outages have left President Robert Mugabe speechless. Even the propaganda has failed to cure the electricity shortages haunting the country at the moment. Households and businesses have to endure long periods of close to 20 hours a day of total dark, reversing all efforts of trying to resuscitate the ailing economy. Meanwhile, upon his return from the UN summit, in the USA, Mugabe blamed it all on the climate change fueled by the West. He blames the West for the low water levels in the giant Lake Kariba resulting in reduced capacity of power generation. But his own citizens cannot take it and blames the 91-year-old leader on poor planning, maladministration and corruption. Jacob Mafume, spokesperson of a new political party, People's Democratic Party, had this to say. As People's Democratic Party, we are very clear that the government has neglected to build a new power station. The last one was in Wange, that is 1986, thereabouts. Uh, we know of the Sengwa 
coal stations, the methane coal stations, even the solar power stations, even the Batoka Gorge uh, power station has been talked about for years and no stone has been laid to deal with this situation. So the government has been in dereliction of duty, they have not built power stations, they are not even importing uh, power and paying for it where it is available. Uh, Kabora Basa has power, DRC has power, which they can sell. The government can't even afford to buy, even if it gets it on credit, it doesn't pay off. So the blame is on Mugabe's uh, government, and it cannot be blamed on rain. Uh, it has been here raining all these years, and we still were having power cuts. So even we, if we are going to have a bumper rain uh, for five successive years, we'll still have power cuts. The government has failed, the government has to change. Ordinary citizens in the streets of Harare complained bitterly of the failure by the government to avail electricity. I, I think really what we need to talk about is there is a national crisis and it needs a solution. Whether it's the minister's problem, whether it's whose problem, it's really not necessary. What we need is a clear uh, stance or a clear response that shows that our government has a plan for the crisis that we are in. This will not solve the problems. It is just uh, a sign that uh, we have got a lack of leadership and uh, our leadership has no plans whatsoever to the problem that we are facing. And at the moment, I think uh, there is need for the country to invest in, in more sources of energy, to invest in solar energy, to invest in biogas. But at the end of the day, these things cannot be only said in newspapers and the other types of the media. But what they need to do now is to come up with strategies, clear policies on how they harness other sources of energy. Instead of focusing on power generation, the Zimbabwean government is planning coming up with a law that restricts usage of electrical geysers, a move that has aroused a lot of anger. If I can afford to buy electricity for $20 and use that money for, for on my geyser, no one should stop me doing that because it's my choice and it's my money. So I think the Zimbabwean government should uh, allow people to use their money for what they want because this is not sustainable. We, we, we need to, to, to solve the real problems. The, the real problems are the, the government has failed to, to grow the economy. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchema. Turkey is continuing a long-term push to increase its profile in Africa. Last week, before a G20 energy conference, Istanbul played host to a high-level conference on access to energy in sub-Saharan Africa with the participation of G20 ministers, energy ministers from African countries, institutional investors and international organizations. Analysts say this is just the latest in Turkish attempts to increase its weight in Africa. For more on this, Atlanta Matlang spoke to Dr. Alex Vines, head of the Africa program at Chatham House. Well, one of the drivers is that Turkey sees itself as an important middle power in the world. And so it has understood that having a strong presence in Africa is important for its international ambitions. And so since 2009, Turkey has been greatly expanding its Africa footprint. The number of Turkish embassies in the continent has grown from 12 to today there are 39. Uh, that's an increase of 27 in just six years. 
Likewise, African states are opening embassies in, in Ankara, the capital of Turkey. So there are 32 African states now with embassies in, in, in Ankara. That's all quite important uh, in terms of Turkey's, Turkey's ambitions. Now, Turkey hosted um, a high-level conference on access to energy in sub-Saharan Africa. Just how important was this conference um, in its push uh, to increase in profile in Africa? Well, um, Turkey's got the presidency of the Group of 20, G20, and it had indicated that it wanted to be a voice for Africa in the G20. The only African country involved in G20 is obviously South Africa. So it hosted a high-level conference on access to energy in sub-Saharan Africa in Istanbul. I don't know how successful that particular conference was. I haven't heard, but it, it fits the profile of Turkey wanting to position itself as a friend and voice of Africa. I'm not sure how successful this can be longer term. Uh, there are plenty of countries that say they do these things, and it is noticeable that at the second Turkey-Africa summit in November 2014 in Malabo, Equatorial Guinea, the um, chair of the African Union, Delamini Zuma, drew attention to that past commitments by Turkey in the, during the first Africa-Turkey summit were unrealized, basically. She said most of the outcomes of the first Africa-Turkey summit are yet to be realized. And I think that's really the point here, that Turkey is ambitious. It has widened its diplomatic presence in Africa. Um, Turkish Airlines, as you might know, is has the largest network of destinations in Africa of any airline in the world. It beats Ethiopian. Yeah, so in a sense, it's become an African airline in that way. It currently flies to 43 destinations. But I think the problem is how can Turkey kind of deliver more? How can it kind of follow up on its promises? And that's, I think, the challenge that Turkey faces today. Yes, actually, I wanted that to be my follow-up question as to, um, you know, what would you say um, are some of the challenges that um, Turkey is likely to face in order for it to sustain um, its presence in Africa? Yeah, um, it's a good question. How can Turkey sustain this, this level of engagement? I think it will be difficult. It needs resources. It needs human capital. It needs understanding of Africa. And Turkey sits in a rough neighborhood. It has plenty of international challenges around it. Its economy is slowing down. Um, there are domestic uncertainties. It's coalition politics at the moment. Turkey's coming up to another election. And so I think that will distract Turkey from the, the ambitious Africa strategy that it has adopted over the last five years. I do think we'll see more engagement of Turkey in Africa. And likewise, I think we'll see many more Africans using Istanbul as a transit location to get around the world because of the competitive advantage of Turkish airlines, which um, it's Air ticket pricing is very competitive. It flies to 45 destinations, and also Turkish visa restrictions are not very onerous, so it's pretty easy to get a Turkish visa. But beyond that, I think it will be more difficult and much more longer term, and Turkey is competing with lots of other countries in the world too. So um, there is a competition going on between middle countries and building up their relationships in Africa. That was Dr. Alex Vines, head of Africa program at Chatham House, on the line from London, speaking to Ntlanta Matlang.
Africa rise and shine Africa zoza Africa amka na unai The Zambezi Environment Outlook 2015 report was launched at the 7th SADC Multi-Stakeholder Water Dialogue that recently took place in the Namibian capital, Windhoek. The report highlights the challenges faced by the Zambezi Basin on the depletion of wetlands, reduction of forest cover and the loss of key species. For more on this, Wandile Kalipa spoke to Eglin Tawia, head of the Southern African Research and Documentation. Yes, one of the highlights of the water dialogue focusing on the role of water and industrialization was the launch of a report known as the Zambezi Environment Outlook 2015. This is a report which is updating and giving a review of the state of the environment since from the last report of 2000. And it is looking at the state and trends and giving scenarios of what is happening since 2000 up to now, looking at what has changed, how it has changed, how are the human activities impacting on the environment, and also the natural processes like climate change, and how the activities through transboundary cooperation are trying to address the impacts of the changes of the environment. Changes in all the sectors, water resources, the industry, the tourism, biodiversity, all these changes. There are so many activities which are being implemented, being addressed in the basin and also benefiting the whole region, not just the Zambezi basin. Now, if you could tell us more about the involvement of the local communities in trying to adapt to these processes of as well as restoring the ecosystems as it is that has been said that the Zambezi is facing challenges. Yes, the community is doing quite a lot in trying to restore the affected environment, the reclamation strategies, rehabilitation strategies. Some of them include growing the type of grass which helps to anchor the soil and also to use the local resources like the rocks, putting them in heaps, blocking the soil erosion so that the landscape is kept or is restored. And they are also rehabilitating the rangelands which have been degraded through deforestation, removing some of the plants which take so much water. And when these plants are removed, the grass is restored. So these communities are working in groups, they are working in partners, and they are also doing that in collaboration with the river basins. That was Eglin Tawia, head of the Southern African Research and Documentation, speaking to Wandile Kalipa. Our economics updates up next with Tabiso Lehoko. And it's time for an economic update. The strike in South Africa's coal mining industry by thousands of National Union of Mine Workers members that started last night is steadily gathering momentum. 
The main gathering point later this morning will be the coal mining district of Emalahleni, formerly known as Witbank in Mpumalanga province. The NUM, which has 70% of unionized members in the industry, has rejected the Chamber of Mines' final offer of 8.5%. Frank Ngumalo reports. Emalahleni, the place of coal in Goni, the new name of the Mpumalanga town formerly known as Whitbank has not seen any new call being lifted to the surface since last night when thousands of NUM members downed tools. The number is expected to rise to 30,000 nationally as the strike gathers momentum. The NUN says all its members are now on strike nationally this morning. However, State Power Utility ESCOM says it still has got enough stockpiles of coal to last for the next 30 days and the strike will not have an immediate impact. Several roads and single lanes has been closed off to traffic in South Africa. The Senton Central Business District is closed for the first official day of the Economability World Festival. The festival is aimed at reducing the number of private vehicles on Senton's busy roads by half. The city of Johannesburg wants people travelling to Senton to make use of public transport. It hopes this will help reduce congestion and carbon emissions to mitigate the negative impact caused by climate change. Session Naidu is in Santin. Several roads in Africa's richest square mile has been closed to traffic this morning. Many of the city's big roads, including Santon Drive and William Nickel Drive, has one lane cordoned off to traffic to allow cyclists to commute easily around the city. Dozens of JMPD officers have also been deployed and can be seen at many of the major intersections where they are rerouting traffic from all the roads that have been cordoned off. Currently, traffic seems to be moving smoothly. However, heavy delays are expected during rush hour. The city of Johannesburg has recommended that the 120,000 commuters coming to the Santon CBD in private cars use public transport until the end of the month. Meanwhile, public transport and cyclists have been given preference on the busy streets of Santon this morning. Road use has been changed in the city to accommodate cyclists and a park-and-ride initiative by the city of Johannesburg. Central Province Chamber of Commerce and Industry Honorary Secretary Thomas Mwawo says increased production will help stabilize Zambia's free-falling guacha. Moawa says Zambia needs to shift from being an import-driven country to a producer of its own goods and services, a situation that could bring stability in the foreign exchange market. Zimbabwe's gold producers have asked President Robert Mugabe's government to cut royalties and electricity tariffs by half to prevent the collapse of mines struggling with low bullion prices. Gold is Zimbabwe's third largest export earner after tobacco and platinum and the sector is still trying to emerge from a deep recession. The U.S. dollar trades at 13.71 in South Africa, 10.43 in Botswana, 12.25 in Zambia. 065 British pound is 0.89 to the euro. Gold 1140 dollars an ounce. Platinum is at nano six dollars an ounce. Brand crude oil for seven dollars eighteen cents a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update. I'm Tabiso Lohoku. Yeah, you know it's. Uh... Thank you, Tabi. So our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati.
SABC brings to you Rugby World Cup 2015 live on SABC2 and SABC radio stations. Now, sports update this hour, starting off with swimming news. South African swimmer Cameron van der Berg nabbed the gold medal in the men's 100-meter breaststroke on day two of the Singapore League of the FINA A-Weave Swimming World Cup 2015 at the OCBC Aquatic Center on Sunday. The South African swimmer beat Singapore-based American swimmer Kevin Codes. Van der Berg won his ninth World Cup medal in the 2015 circuit to remain the overall leader with 402 points, 141 points ahead of second place Emil Seabom. The 27-year-old is certain he needs to better his timing in order to qualify for the 2016 Rio de Janeiro Olympic Games and hopes to train harder. On to football news, TP Mazembe will meet Algeria's USM Alger in the 2015 African Champions League final. Mazembe booked their place on Sunday with a 3-0 win over Sudan's Almeric in the return leg of the semi-final in the Congolese mining hub of Lubumbashi. Tanzania international Mbwana Samata scored twice with Ivory Coast Roger Asale hitting their third to give the four times former champions a 4-2 aggregate win. In rugby news, Springbok coach Henneke Meyer has conceded that he finds himself in a catch-22 situation with finding balance in resting players, giving other squad members an opportunity to play and wanting to keep up the momentum when it comes to his team selection for the USA game. Meyer says the USA will be a difficult opponent and that is why they need to take them seriously. Yeah, you know, it's uh, really put this game behind us. Uh, like Fury said, um, you know, learn hard lessons. There's every single game is tough. Uh, they've had a they've had a longer turnaround than us. They've been waiting for this game, and they will be physically up. We've watched their game against Scotland. I've watched that game, uh, immense physical game, and uh, you know, the dog's still going through the guys. But uh, every single game is physical, so a short turnaround. First one to study America again, and then we have to have a mix of of players. Uh, you know, I'm caught in between the 22 because, uh, you know, on the one hand, a lot of our guys hasn't played a lot. And I thought that's why we had a very slow start uh, in the championship as well and in this tournament. Mayor says the Springboks will need to be ruthless and play with desperation against USA in order to keep the momentum they have been able to pick up by winning their last two matches. We at our basis, we've been uh, written off. So uh, we have to keep the pressure ourselves, you know. Uh, I don't know why it's part of our mentality. But if the whole world writes us off, that's when we come back. And uh, we can have that ruthlessness and uh, desperation going into Wednesday as well. Um, so, you know, we don't talk about favourites. We just take it game by game. We're going to go out there. But you have to take confidence from the good things. I think, uh, you know, suddenly our lineups is working with the youngsters. Uh, Andre Pollard's kicking performance. Our defence, you know, that's a great thing for me. In two games, we gave away one try. And that's how you win trophies. So I think what we've done well, and the senior players must get a lot of credit and the, and the, the assistant coaches. And finally, with golf news, Thorbjorn Olesen has won the Alfred Dunhill Links Championship at St Andrews for his third European Tour victory. The Dane finished on 18 under par for a two-strokes win over Americans Brooks Kupka and Chris Stroud. And that's your sport news this hour. SABC brings to you Rugby World Cup 2015 live on SABC2 and SABC radio stations.
Africa rise and shine Africa zorla Africa amka na unai Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at this hour. South Sudan Vice President says political will exist for lasting peace. At least eight people killed in the capital of Burundi, Bujumbura, and Kenyan teachers call off their five-week strike. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutu Ramagaza, technical producer Charles Moyo, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa. As trademark featuring Durban Knights and DJ Zintling Gidi with a song titled Shumaya. Trade my car, yeah. What I-